We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Our scripture reading tonight is found in Second Chronicles. So if you would turn your Bibles there. Reached a real milestone this morning in completing Ezekiel, didn't we? And now we are in Second Chronicles. They have a few more chapters to go here, actually more than a few more. We've got to get up to chapter 36. So we've got a few more months here, but we'll look at um, chapter 22 this evening. If you'd follow along as I read, it says, Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the raiders who came up with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the older sons. Think of the tragedy of that, foreigners coming in and killing the king's sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. So, uh, sorry, he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother advised him to do wickedly. Moms, don't ever do that, <laughs> please. Isn't that terrible? Advised him to do wickedly. That's not what a mom is for. A mom is to help you to do the right thing. Verse 4, Therefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He also followed their advice and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Hazael, king of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead and the Syrians, wounded Joram, or Jehoram. Now, this is confusing, okay? Ahaziah was the son of Jehoram, but that was a different Jehoram than this one that we're talking about now in uh, son of Ahab, king of Israel. Common name, I suppose. Verse 6, Then he returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which he had received at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, that's Azariah or Ahaziah alternatively, same person, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. His going to Joram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall, for when he arrived, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. And it happened when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab and found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who served Ahaziah, that he killed them. Then he searched for Ahaziah and they caught him. He was hiding in Samaria and brought him to Jehu. When they had killed him, they buried him because, they said, he is the son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. So the house of Ahaziah had no one to assume power over the kingdom." And as it is, politics and nature hating a vacuum, somebody fills in. Verse 10, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Nice grandma, huh? 
But Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. Let's just go back and think about that again. Who is this person? Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king. Joash, the son of a- took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and put him uh, away. So Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest. Okay, so she's the daughter of the king and the wife of the priest. There's some serious connections there. For she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Can you imagine? Now, let's see. How old was he um, when he became King Joash? Let's see here. Was he just an infant baby then? So, for six years, you're keeping a small child under wraps in this situation. That's quite amazing, isn't it? That would be tough. That would be difficult. But they managed somehow to uh, accomplish that. All right. We uh, set aside some time this evening for a Q&A session. And uh, if you don't have any questions for me, I did receive one question already, and I'll work on that one with you. But I'd like to offer you first the opportunity, and if no questions, then maybe I can ask you questions. I always like to do that, put you to the test. Any questions tonight? I don't think, I'm just going to look here on my, uh, one second on my phone because I'm not, I haven't looked at it actually all afternoon. See if somebody has sent me something. Uh, No, no questions here. Anybody? Jansen, you had one? Yes. Um, so the question is, is the priest supposed to marry somebody only from the tribe of Levi? Uh, that was, there is a regulation about that, but if you're going to ask me to try to find that right now, I'm going to have a hard time coming up with that. Um, the high priest was not allowed to, um, marry a woman who is not a virgin or not, uh, who is a divorced woman, the high priest. Um, but was supposed to take uh, a wife. You finding it there, dear, for me? You look like you're going after something. No, you're looking for something else. You're looking for something else. Okay. Um, so I'll have to uh, put that question in abeyance. I'm sorry, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, marriage for priests. I know somebody out there online is saying, I know the answer, I know the answer. Yeah, if I had all my Bible study tools up here too, I'd know the answer also right quick, but I don't have them. That's the problem with doing extemporaneous Q&A. Um, yeah, I'd have to dig that up, and it might not be in an easy place to find Exodus or Leviticus or somewhere, so hang on to that. The fact of the matter is 
as it says in 22.11, that she was the daughter of the king and the wife of the priest. Just because she was doesn't mean that she should have been. You know, they didn't always follow what they were supposed to have followed. So I have to, I'll have to look that up. Thank you for that question. Sorry about that. Uh, anybody else? Question. You have one? Isaiah 66, 24, the last verse in the prophecy, it was about uh, them going out and looking upon the corpses of those who had transgressed against God and uh, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Resurrection and all, yeah. So the question is, what's the context of Isaiah sixty six twenty four, and especially with the uh, mention of corpses, that doesn't seem to fit with the doctrine of resurrection, right? So uh, the question is well formulated enough for us to take a crack at it. Let's go back to Isaiah sixty six, um, and where shall we start? Back. Uh, in fourteen sixty six fourteen, when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind. Well, actually, you know what? Let me back up for a second. Um, go back to uh, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, actually, he was looking for another verse, but... This will do. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, peace like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides, you shall be carried and dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And then it talks about the reign of God. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants in the middle of 14 and his indignation to his enemies. Behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. This is correlated with the book of Revelation and the coming of Christ in Revelation 19. And then he will reign for a thousand years in his kingdom. So I've taken this passage to be of the millennial kingdom. The dead are not raised, the unsaved dead are not raised until after the thousand years are finished, according to Revelation chapter 20. And so this does fit that context of looking upon those who transgressed against, against God. Now, that is not to say that this passage is, is simple or without difficulties, because sometimes in Isaiah and along in this area as well, you're going to find that there is a little bit of confusion as to whether God is speaking about, through Isaiah, the new heaven and new earth or the millennial kingdom. And in the, for the prophet, it seems that it's such a distant vision that it's difficult for him to be able to separate the millennial kingdom and the eternal state because one merges right into the other one. So... We have to kind of pull them apart a little bit based on other revelation in Scripture, and that's why I tied in 
with Revelation uh, 19 and 20 to try to help us with that. Um, let's see. Uh, God will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come to see my glory. I will set a sign among them and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands uh, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory and they shall declare my, declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations. Here's the regathering of the nation of Israel. Uh, and uh, horses and in chariots and litters on mules and camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will also take some of them for priests and Levites. And then here's the one I was thinking of. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. So we get a little confused here. Is this the new heavens and the new earth or is this the old earth with the millennial kingdom? Simply because the Lord is saying, for as those things are going to remain, then he says the, uh, the people, the descendants, and your name will remain. So the, na- the Jewish nation will never cease, just like the new heavens and the new earth won't cease. They won't cease once the millennial kingdom begins they'll be in a great level of security um, before the Lord. And it's then in that millennial kingdom in which Israel is prospered and the nations give up the, the Jews that are in them and they're gathered, that they will go forth and look on the corpses of those who were slain. Um, unpleasant as that sounds, if you think of Revelation 19, when the Lord returns, he slays them with the sword that comes out of his mouth and the birds are filled with their flesh. There's carnage because of the great devastation uh, and, and even before that in the battle of Armageddon. So um, these corpses, corpses are going to be unfortunately a staple item during that end time at the beginning at the start of the millennial kingdom. So an abhorrence to all flesh? That's a good question. I'm going to hold my answer there. Anybody else? Let me address a question that I received uh, remotely here. And I don't know if I'm going to state the question exactly accurately because I've gotten it third hand here, but our second hand, but um, the question basically is, how do Christians handle uh, boycotts of companies? Or should they boycott companies? Maybe that's the more exact way of answering the, asking the question. So the example is, uh, company X has some corporate policy that is detestable to Christians, must we, shall we, should we refuse to do business with those companies? Um, let's see. Uh, and increasingly that is an, a, a problem because these companies are implementing policies that are odious. For lately example, companies are saying, look, we'll help our employees to get an abortion to travel to another state to kill their baby. 
because the uh, Supreme Court has changed the law, and thus we uh, in our state might not be able to have an abortion, so we'll send our employees, pay them money to go to another state to have an abortion. Do you, as a Christian, boycott that company? Um, first of all, let me comment on the policy itself. The policy itself, of course, is wicked. It's, uh, in, it's uh, causing the company to enter into the wicked sin of murder with the person who is uh, carrying out the abortion and the doctor, so-called doctor, who does that. Um, and that is not in accordance with really the company's fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders if it's a publicly held company. It's got a job to do, and that job is to make and sell widgets of whatever sort those widgets are, not to get involved in social action uh, like they are doing. We saw that also with the Disney company who got involved in uh, those kinds of lobbying activities, and they really got hit by that in the state of Florida because they, they lost sight of what their mission really is as a company. Um, so coming back from that aspect of the question to, to the question I was asked about, um, about boycotting, that company ought to also, by the way, uh, pay its employees an equal amount for having a baby. Why do they discriminate against people who want to have a baby by favoring those who don't want to have one? So this is a very odious kind of policy, what do you do about it? The same thing came up over the past years in companies that supported gay marriage or other things. Um, you could name a whole bevy of, of things that would be uh, detestable uh, to you. And then you ask yourself the question, and I've been asked the question, do I boycott those companies? Um, my shortest answer that I can come up with is this, and this is a Christian principle, you have to do what you are fully convinced in your mind is necessary to do. You're going to decide. I believe this is one of those questions that you might decide differently than I decide, but we don't have to get at odds about one another. What I don't want to have happen, because I think it's very anti-biblical, is for somebody to say, you have to boycott company X. And somebody else says, yeah, but the product that I want is made by company X or that I need or that is most affordable or, or whatever. Um, and I can't keep track of all that stuff anyway. And so if one person says you have to and the other person's not convinced, then you end up causing division in the body of Christ. And so I think best these decisions are left to the individuals to make uh, in their own mind and be fully convinced in their own hearts about this. Now, somebody's going to say, well, what do you do, Pastor? <laughs> I'll tell you what I do at the risk of getting somebody upset at me. I hope not, but um, I basically don't pay attention to much of that stuff. I, first of all, I can't keep track of it. I don't have the time. Some people have the time to track all of that and read the articles and all of that sort of thing. I personally do not. I am swamped. If I need a product from a company or a service, I don't ask any questions for conscience sake, another biblical principle. Um, that doesn't mean that I, I won't ever do that uh, kind of thing. I favored one particular home improvement store over another because of their policy on gay marriage, but if I couldn't find the product I needed to fix something at the church at the preferred company, I had to go to the other one. Um, and so 
that was just the reality of how it worked. Um, so I don't have a strong feeling personally that I have to boycott, and here's why. Everything that we touch in this world ultimately has some connection to sin. Let me tell you uh, from Matthew chapter 25 what the, the man said in the parable of the talents. In Matthew chapter 25, you know the story of a, a king, a person who went to a far country, called his servants, delivered his goods to them, gave five talents, two talents, one talent, and he said, go do business with these until I come. And the first two did well, and they showed the master when he comes back. And the third one says, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers that I might have at my coming received my own with interest. How does this relate? You know that when you give your de- you put a deposit of your money in the bank, they loan it out to some company or some individual to do something with. They could end up loaning it out to a business that builds a cannabis store with that money. So do you then not put your money on deposit with that bank? Uh, money being kind of fungible as it is, what I mean by that is, you know, you put money into a pot and they take money out of that same pot. You know, is it, quote, that same money? Well, and effectively it is. So in the end, I've decided that I can't chase down all those possible connections and try to maintain four levels of separation between me and some bad thing that might happen. I just simply don't know. I don't ask questions. Um, I just pretty much get the best deal that I can for whatever is needed at the time. Now, some, somebody else is fully convinced in their own mind. They say, well, that's a, that's a um, what's the word? That's a compromised position. I don't believe that it's compromised because you put your money in the bank and you haven't asked questions about what that bank's policy is. And this relates also to another question that I've thought a lot about over the probably the last 10 years or maybe 14 or 15 years, and that is... Um, socially responsible investing, uh, or I think it's called ESG, environmental, social, and something else. Somebody look up that acronym for me. ESG, I think it is. ESG investing. And basically the idea is we're only going to invest in companies that are, that follow our mode of, or desired, uh, you know, way of doing things. So I'm an environmentalist, say, I'm not, but say I were, I want to only invest in those companies that follow that principle. And so they're, in a sense, boycotting other companies. Or if I'm a Christian, and I'm a Christian um, uh, pastor, I I only, you know, might decide I only want to invest in um, stocks or mutual funds or instruments which are righteous, kingdom investing, sort of. And uh, besides limiting yourself to a very small segment of the market, and a dangerous one, I would add, because there are people out there trying to take advantage, um, it becomes very onerous to try to figure out how to make that work. So I've basically just said I'm not going to try to figure all of that out. Let me give you a, a, a little kind of tip on this that eases my mind about it, although it's bothersome to me that groups of people get together and do evil things and spend money in an evil way, there are two things in particular that, that 
inform me about this. Number one, when I buy a stock, say I buy a stock in Microsoft, and Microsoft has a policy that you know they support whatever thing that I don't. My money doesn't go to Microsoft. My money doesn't actually support Microsoft in some direct fashion. The money that was used to first purchase the stock at its IPO went to Microsoft, and the money that the person, the second person that bought the stock goes to the first person that bought the stock, and the third person that bought the stock goes to the second person. So when I buy the stock, I'm paying some unknown person. Unknown because the market is so huge that when you put in an order for that stock, it just you buy it at market rate, market price at that, you know, that moment, and you don't know where the money actually went to or, or the stock uh, came from. So it's a closed kind of system. And so because of that, I'm not buying into the, the uh, what's the word, into the philosophy of that company. I'm buying thinking that, uh, that I'm going to buy a piece of their work, their labor, to try to see if a, a return can be gained. Um, so I'm not really buying directly the company, but their philosophy of work, their product line, uh, their, you know, whether they're successful or not, and whether that will mean that they return a dividend or return a good uh, an increase in the stock price. The other thing is some people have had the same question as this only in terms of the government, and they have boycotted the government by doing what? Not paying their taxes because they say their taxes are used for evil things. To support abortion, for example. How is it that Planned Parenthood gets an inside track on government money? I don't understand that. They shouldn't get any government money. Uh, government, if there, if there were to be such a thing as, as um, uh, clinics that help uh, needy women with things that they need for pregnancy and childbirth, that sort of thing, it should be a government clinic that gets the money and not a private organization that supports abortion. And in my view, that government clinic should stay right out of the issue of abortion to avoid causing conscience problems for its citizens. That would be a wise thing to do. And then people who support abortion, if they want to, they can give all the money they want. But we don't have to as taxpayers. But that's not the reality that we live in. The reality that we live in is like the reality that the first century Christians lived in. They lived in Rome, many of them, or under the hegemony of Rome, and they had to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so they had to pay taxes even if Rome persecuted or prosecuted unjust wars, even if they killed Christians, even if they persecuted churches, even if they had uh, Israel under their thumb. They still had to pay taxes, and the Apostle Paul told them to pay their taxes. He didn't tell them to boycott it, and why didn't he? It was useless to try to do so, and the main purpose of them paying their taxes was anyway that the government would do the function that they were supposed to, which is restrain evil and promote that which is good. And so that main function should be cared for, and and because we're in a sin-cursed world, guess what? There is no avoidance of some connection with sinful things. Here's another example. You want to go to a store, a grocery store, to buy food. 
Do you buy food at the local grocery store, whether it's Kroger's or uh, Aldi's or Myers or, or Country Market or um, Trader Joe's or Whole Foods? If they sell alcohol, you don't want to support the business, right? Because you're very seriously opposed to alcohol. Which grocery stores are you going to be able to go to? Do any of those not sell alcohol? Maybe Aldi? Or does Aldi? They do. They make a lot of money on alcohol. So what are you going to do? Not buy groceries? It's just, what, what you have to do is, is unsully yourself from direct connection to the things that are displeasing to God. But you, as far as I know, you can't go to a grocery store, at least a major grocery store, and not have uh, you know, alcohol there. Seems like there was another example I was going to use for you. Um, the grocery store. I mean, anything. You go to an auto repair shop. What are they going to use your money for? They have a bad policy for their employees or they go turn around and use the money to do some sinful thing. At what point would you stop worrying about boycotting the company? And for me, because it's so intertwined, you know, once I let go of those funds and I get the, the good or service back that I need, that's the extent of my connection. That's not a sullying connection to uh, a matter of sin. I'm convinced about that. I'm sensitive to the fact that I don't want to su- support, you know, how can I say, as, as directly as possible, I don't want to support some bad cause, but... Almost every company you deal with is going to have a support is going to be involved in some bad cause. So I'm convinced about that. Somebody else has their different view, but I think in the end you're going to end up if you have a strong view on that. At some point, I'm going to be able to find an inconsistency with your uh, implementation of it, and uh, that's going to put you in kind of a compromised position itself if you're being inconsistent about it. So. Um, what else? How else can I follow up? I think that's about all I wanted to say on that. Anybody else have a follow-up or another question? Maybe the person who had the question has a follow-up, but I can't talk to them right now. Yes, sir, Ben. Excuse me, Ben, can you say the Defense of Marriage Act, I thought, was a law passed in the late 1990s and signed by Bill Clinton. Are they coming up with a new law that is different than that under the same name now? Right. Yes, so Ben is talking about the uh, 
trying to encode the uh, uh, gay marriage into law because they feel they can't count on SCOTUS anymore, and that actually is a good thing. The court does not make law. If you want a law, you have to make the law, pass it through the legislature, the people's representatives in our system, and then get it signed by the executive. That's the way to make law. So when the, when the, when the Supreme Court said that there is no right to abortion in the Constitution, they decided absolutely correctly. They threw it over to the states, and that is still a mess, but they were absolutely correct that you cannot find a, um, a right to abortion in the Constitution. Now, they should have gone farther and said you can find the right to life in the Constitution, but they didn't do that. Um, but what if your company comes out in support of that, uh, of that thing? Well, in my view, look, if I were the CEO of that company, I would say, friends, look, that's not our business. We're not going to talk in this company about sexuality. We're not going to talk about your orientation. We're not going to talk about all that stuff because that's not our work. Our work is to make and design and produce and sell our widgets, whatever those things are, and that's what we're going to focus on. We're not going to waste our time in all this social stuff. You want to do that on your own time? That's up to you. You want to do that on your own resources? That's up to you. But I, as a CEO, cannot spend the company's money and time doing that. Now, if you have a company that doesn't have a CEO and, and a board like that, then the same boycott thing holds true. Are you only going to then work for a company that holds your ideals pretty closely, some kind of Christian company? Um, you're going to be out looking for work pretty, uh, pretty hard. I mean, some have Christian owners. That's nice. But even those Christian owners are being pressed because they have government laws that f forbid them from certain kinds of discrimination and, and practices and all of that. So, and, and some of that's good and some of that's you know, not in accordance with Christian principles. But uh, you, it's going to be tough for you to say, I'm, I'm going to boycott this company um, and every company that does something that's uh, you know, objectionable in its upper management. So good follow-up. Ben. Yeah, so how do we contend with the evil? Well, you know, so you say, if I feel like I can do something by voting with my pocketbook. You know, I can, I can not support that company. I can support another one. Like I say, you're totally free to make that choice, fully convinced in your own mind. How do we contend with that evil, which is causing our blood pressure to be, you know, high every day? The answer is the same answer, Ben, that you would give for how do you contend with somebody at the art fair booth who is saying some, spewing some terrible philosophy. You give them the gospel and the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean you can go to the CEO of company XYZ because you don't have access to them. You would like to. But the individuals in the company, uh, your coworkers, people on the street, people in the society, give them the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation it is that which purifies and cleanses. You're going to have a very hard time logically convincing most people. There are some who will be red-pilled. 
you know that term? Um, politically. Red-pilled politically. That is, they, they, they take the, you know, instead of it's like swallowing the Kool-Aid, but they swallow the red pill, meaning they've just been kind of, their eyes have been opened to reality, and they see how things really are. Not the blue pill of the make-believe world that isn't really the thing that's happening. And so when people, some people will have that kind of experience, and they will come out of the Democrat Party, for example, and they'll say, oh, my eyes see now. We were on the plantation in the inner cities and so on. But that's not really the solution to the problem we're looking for. You know, the solution we really want is them to be saved, not just to become political conservatives. Keep in mind, being a political conservative does not mean you're saved. <laughs> you can be very far from salvation and be a very vociferous uh, Ayn Rand type or uh, William F. Buckley type or Rush Limbaugh type or whatever. You can be you know, a fine conservative, but that doesn't mean that you're saved. Um, and so getting somebody to agree with you that such and such policy is bad is not necessarily what you really want to do. So, yeah, so give them the gospel. How do you contend with evil? Give the gospel and also pray for them. Pray for, pray for those people. And isn't it uh, Paul that tells uh, Timothy to, um, to uh, teach these people with patience so that you might rescue some of them from the fire? I'm paraphrasing it, but you might remember the passage that I'm talking to, and that's a that's a good one for me because sometimes I can get a little, I can get a little upset with people. I remember one time, I had some, uh, I think it was Mormons, on our street, and I I you know contended with them, and I finally told them I said, guys, you just need to leave our neighborhood. I was not terribly nice <laughs> about it. You guys have to leave our neighborhood. Here I am thinking about my neighbors on all the sides of our house and thinking they're going to try to be deceiving those people who need the Lord in the first place. They're already deceived enough. They don't need any more deception. So we do want to be uh, kind and patient, and perhaps we will save some from being lost. Anything else? I'm sorry there aren't more people here with questions for us, but we will uh, leave you with a question. Then the Pharisees, it says in Matthew 22, verse 15, went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone. For you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is our next portion in the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the thing that are, things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. They couldn't trip him up in his words, in their hypocritical testing. But their question was, is it lawful or legal to pay taxes to Caesar? And the answer the Lord gave is, short answer, yes, it is lawful to pay him the appropriate amount of taxes, but you also must owe God and pay God that which belongs 
to him as well. So you have dual duties. You have a duty in the secular sphere and a duty in the religious sphere, and you pray God that those two duties don't become so entangled that you can't fulfill them both. That's when civil disobedience has to come into effect. So if the, if the um, secular authority says you have to pay 100% in taxes, what do you do then? You've got to feed your family. If the secular authority says you may not meet in your churches, what do you do then? Because your religious responsibility is a responsibility is to meet, to gather together with God's people your secular responsibility would run afoul of that to not meet together because that's what the secular authority says for whatever reason, safety reason, health reason, just a reason of spite. And so you have to then choose what you're going to do. So governing authorities need to be careful not to make laws that run afoul of the other responsibilities that people have in their lives so that they don't cause unbearable um, difficulties of conscience for the people under their rule. That's an important principle that governors and mayors and things need to, uh, need to observe. Okay? All right, I think we're going to call it. We've had a long day today. It's after 7 o'clock. We've been here for almost an hour. So thank you for those questions. I will uh, look up that uh, question on priests and marriage, haven't thought about that lately, haven't needed to, (laughs) so uh, anyways, let's have a prayer. Father, we thank you for these questions and answers, for the time we were able to share together and thinking about um, whether we should participate in boycotts of one level or another, or one kind or another, and uh, also the question about the priests and uh, these other matters, and also in Isaiah 66. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, factor all these things into our thinking and continue studying the Word of God so that we may be able to deal with these types of questions that continue to come our way. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.